Hello and welcome back to Spy Hard's podcast. We're here with another Spy Master interview. I'm Agent Scott. And I'm Cam the Provocateur, swooping in on a jetpack. Now, Cam, we're back with our extended The Rocketeer coverage. But who have we got joining us on the show this week? Yes, we are being joined by co-writer Danny Bilson, who was with this film for a long time. He'll talk about it on the interview, but this was a long-term development, and he was there almost every single step of the way. Yeah, we do talk a little bit about the development on the review that came out a couple of days ago, so if you haven't listened to that yet, go back and check that out first. But um, yeah, very interesting pre-production, so I guess the best thing to do is throw to the interview itself. Cam, roll it. And joining us on the show this week, it is the co-writer of this week's film. It is Mr. Danny Bilson. How are you doing, sir? I'm doing pretty well out here in uh, L.A. Uh, it's not so hot. The weather broke. It's uh, cooler. So, um, yeah, I'm doing pretty good. I'll, uh, I'll take uh, hot weather at the moment. It's, it's, it's all rain all the time here in London. Yeah. So, But then again, that is it for about 60% of the year. Yeah, my daughter's actually at school at uh, Trinity Dublin. So I hear the, I know the weather over in that direction. <laughs> you know exactly what it's yeah. like. Um, but yeah, this week we're talking about your film, The Rocketeer. And you know, it's, it's uh, always a pleasure to have someone who helped make a film join us to discuss the film itself. But I think before we get to The Rocketeer, I want to talk a little bit about you and just how you got sort of started in the, in the film industry. So Danny, maybe take us back a little bit and sort of what got your foot in the door? Well, Paul and I met in college in the theater department and our professor at the time, we had done the William Gillette Sherlock Holmes play in the summer. And, you know, we loved Sherlock Holmes and we loved old movies. That was sort of the connection between Paul and I. And our professor at school said, if you write, we said, oh, we really cool to do a Sherlock Holmes meets Houdini kind of espionage pre-World War One thing. And he said, well, if you write it, we'll do it. So, so we actually wrote this play called The Houdini Deception and, and put it on in college. And that's how we started uh, writing together. Um, foot in the door, we, we started working as extras, you know, movie extras. And in, in mm -hmm. back in the, well, we graduated college in 78. So we worked as extras from 78 to 82 while we were writing. And Paul can be seen in Blade Runner. And I can be seen in the MASH TV show and my favorite year and Happy Days I was on all the time. But that was, but we were writing. Um, and then I got a gig as a non-union camera assistant, and we were—I was working on this thing called Ghoulies for Charlie Band. Oh yeah. Um, and Paul and I were writing all the time, and we had actually written a script. There's a lot of stories, but we had written a script for Richard Pryor, really because Paul's girlfriend was his personal assistant. And he was trying to find a couple of kids who would write something in three weeks. So we actually wrote this <laughs> epic war movie that I think was a I still think it's a great script. And anyway, I was working on Ghoulies and I said to um, Charlie Band's girlfriend at the time who ran his development, Debbie Dion, I said, you know, I think, you know, Paul and I can write as well as this. And I, she said, well, let me read something. So I gave her that Richard Pryor script. It was called The Death Master. And she was really impressed. And the next thing we knew, 
we made a deal where we would write seven movies so that I could direct one. And so over two years, I think we wrote seven movies and I directed one called Zone Troopers. Um, Trancers mm -hmm. was the first one that was made and then Eliminators and some other ones were made after we left, like Arena. Uh, there's probably some other ones I forgot, but um, Trancers and Zone Troopers were kind of the ones that were the closest to us. Um, and then from there, we got it off. A couple things happened. People really like Trancers in particular. Yeah. And mm -hmm. that Jim Cameron saw it at the AFM and told Larry Gordon, who was running Fox at the time, who told his assistant, this kind of Lloyd Levin, who I'm still friends with this day, who Paul and I met with. And he said, well, what do you guys want to do? We had just come back from Italy making Zone Troopers. And we said, well, we really want to do the Rocketeer because we had found the comic book in the at the Golden Apple. While we were working at Empire writing all those B movies, we used to go to the Golden Apple at lunch, maybe every week, every couple of weeks, and go through the comic book bins. And that's where we discovered the Rocketeer. So um, there's a lot there's a lot of stories to the Rocketeer. I could just keep going. You know, it's like we contacted Dave Stevens, et cetera, et cetera, and I could tell the rest of the story. But I want to give you a chance to ask questions. Well, that's uh, I, I was actually about to jump in. Thank you. You made my job easier there. Um, we're, I can see the ro Rocketeer on the precipice. It, it, it is coming. But I wanted to just sort of dig into maybe a little bit more about screenwriting. Obviously, you're working with your writing partner from very early on. What were some of your early inspirations, some of your early role models when it came to screenwriting? Who did you look to for inspiration when it came to putting stories together? So I can speak to all the inspiration and one of them really plays into your podcast. So first of all, Paul and I grew up watching old movies on TV in the 60s, right? So movies from the 30s and 40s. And we were really familiar with them and really um, kind of loved them. The other thing, the biggest influence on us being children of the 60s was James Bond, 100%. Biggest influence on my creative was um, I remember my dad took me when I was like seven to see from Russia with love. And mm -hmm. so and then Goldfinger, one of my I remember going to a double feature of Goldfinger and Thunderball as a kid. So those really had a lot to do with me and I think Paul and then other stuff we did. Like some of the rhythms of what we wrote were always kind of like that, whether we were doing the Flash or the Rocketeer or then we, of course, did the James Bond games themselves. Um, that was a huge, huge influence on, on Paul and I. So old movies, James Bond, and, um, I forgot what the other part of the question was, but there was a third thing I was going to say, and I forgot what it was. Early influences, just as like, was there any screenwriters you were looking to? Oh yeah, that was the other piece. Thank you. So in 1980, Paul and I took a class from John Milius that was like, at this thing called Sherwood Oaks in Hollywood, where you could just, anybody could sign up and pay a hundred bucks or whatever. And I think there were eight classes and maybe there were 60, 70 people in this old auditorium with folding chairs. And John was about to do Conan. And it was a screenwriting class. It was the only one we ever had. And we loved his work. Um, Apocalypse Now in particular was, you know, mind-blowing, one of my favorite films. But Paul and I were big fans of his, The Wind and the Lion. And so in this class, 
he taught us he really there were things that he shared in that class that i still use and i teach in my classes to this day it was a huge influence and he also gave us scripts to look at he gave us oliver stone's draft of conan before he rewrote it i remember that he gave us his first draft of apocalypse now with the different ending i remember reading that really clearly and then he shared things that were really important um forever like write the movie you want to see the most i think that was one of the most important things i learned from him um and then he was also specific about how to write and i think paul and i were influenced on how we put things on the page and how i still you know paul passed away like four years ago but i still write and i still put things on the page the same way and prioritize some of the same things but uh john milius for sure biggest influence on paul and i because it was not just an influence of gee we like his movies and then it was wow we like the way he writes it was um he was our only teacher mm -hmm. and then later on we got to hire him and work with him more than once in our game era he worked with us on a desert strike game and then he was really doing a lot of work with us on Homefront about the north korean occupation and right when we were going to do a pr tour he had a, a stroke and he got sick and he wasn't able to speak so um we did get to work with him years later in a couple of different venues there was another place we worked with him too but back in 1980 by far john milius is the biggest influence i would say also that robert bolt was a big influence on me the english you know the writer who wrote man for all seasons and he's you know he was huge in the 60s and the late 50s mm -hmm. um but no, it has to be John because, you know, we were in his class and we loved his films. And when you're working, you know, with like trancers and zone troopers, what lessons do you think you really took from working in B movies that you would carry into, you know, when you started doing like the major studio stuff? Well, if you started B movies, we're, you know, we were always really efficient, but I think and put the money on the screen, you know, don't waste it on nonsense. Mm -hmm. But I was also raised by a in a family of film, uh, you know, tell my father was an assistant director and a director and I grew up on sets. And then I think there was always a sense of very strong um, commitment to the film, not the nonsense. You know, I always just say, keep the drama on the screen. So um, I would say the B movie stuff has always kept me from wasting money on stupid things like fancy offices you know what i mean it's like it's like i think from there it was just try to get every penny on the screen and don't waste it on stuff like i don't even really i don't even you know i've got some things i'm working on in development but i don't want a writer's room i don't want to spend all that money on all those writers i i in this case i'll just when it's a limited series just write it myself so it, it's yeah i think just just trying to get the money on the screen is what i learned from uh starting with nothing i think zone troopers cost like five hundred thousand dollars total right and i really do like admire your work on trancers just how economical the storytelling is i mean the movie's like 75 minutes or something like that but it's so effective it doesn't feel like it's been shortchanged, you know due to runtime or anything it feels like a complete movie yeah i think I don't remember having a page limit or a page requirement or Charlie saying do make it short for budget. It's just kind of that's how it laid out, you know, and that's how it felt. I mean, I have a script 
right now that's in early development, production development, that is a submarine thing. And it's like 93 pages. And it's because it was, it's just, the story just felt right at 93 pages because it's all in real time and stuff. So I think it's just how the piece dictates it. I really don't remember having to cut stuff for too many pages. I definitely had to cut stuff in the Empire days for too big. I remember Zone Troopers had a, at the beginning, they escaped in the original script down down a river in a raft, you know, and that had to go. So then they just ran down a gully or something in the movie. Well, we're getting to the point of of the Rocketeer because you mentioned it before anyway. You you picked it up, you found it in a in a comic book bin in a comic book shop, and you'd read it, obviously loved it, and you'd pitched it. Moving on from there, like I've read the story online, but I kind of want to hear it from you. Obviously, you found it, you pitched it. Who was buying it and what was your original concept for sort of turning it into a film? Well, I would say that it is mostly what the original con it, it it was how do we get this book and this feeling and this art and everything we loved about old movies and the and when I say we, now we're talking about Dave Stevens, Paul DeMeo, and myself. Because mm-hmm. we worked on it for six years. It was like six years from the time that Dave said, Okay, you guys can have a free option to the time it came out so there was a lot of it was a long journey there was two directors and we were always um developing it but i think we were just trying to get it on the screen you know what was in the the book we were trying to get the book on the screen i don't think we were trying to do something other than that and then it had a life of its own right um obviously the idea for the creeper you know rondo hatton was an idea of mine that was Dave, it turned out, was a huge fan. It was just, you know, kismet. You know, it was a, he was a huge fan of it. And I think that was one of the things that endeared him to us. Also, Zone Troopers, because we had just come back from Italy after doing Zone Troopers. And I think all the production art and stuff was in my office. I remember that. And it was all this cheesy, you know, Art Deco 1930s stuff. So we were kindred spirits as far as Paul, Dave, and I all knew what a movie serial was from the 30s we knew what the inspiration for raiders was we were all like you know dave i think did storyboards on raiders i'm positive he did because he did some work as a storyboard uh artist um but you know we we just wanted to fully realize it and if there was a movie model it was you know raiders was a blown out movie serial right and this rocketeer was king of the rocket man and we're just it was kind of we wanted it to be like that i would say the three of us i'm talking about dave stevens paul DeMeo, myself and was like dave stevens really on board with you know you guys coming on and like making changes to the material because often you know creators either hand it forward and just go i'm going to take a step back or they're really not into the changes being made where was he in terms of the evolution of the story for the film no, I think he was in the room with us a lot, a lot. Um, we might spend some time coming up with something and then Dave would come over and we'd tell him what we wanted to do. Um, he was very involved. I don't, he didn't drive movie story exactly. I don't remember him like saying, let's do this. He absolutely was responding constantly, usually positively to what we were saying. Because we were naturally in sync. It wasn't like 
I like this. I don't like that. It was pretty much like we were all just, you know, Paul and I, well, it didn't, you know, we took, I don't remember how long it took to get our first idea of the story, which then changed over the years. You know, Bill Deere came in, a different director come in and he had ideas. And then Joe Johnston came in and he had ideas. But the core of it um, is always the same. I mean, the thing about the movie is the sequence where he flies for the first time is pretty much the purest part of the movie for me. And it's a translate because it's the comic book. Mm -hmm. Just just amped up and explored a little bit, exploited a little, you know, I mean, expanded a little bit. So that's all we were trying to do. And then a lot of people contributed, you know, Bill Deere contributed, who left, the, he had ideas in there and lines of dialogue and stuff. And um, a couple of other writers came in and did some rewrites, but Paul and I came back to it in the end. So, um, which was unusual at the time. Usually at Disney in those days, you were just new writers, new writers. But I, credit the producers chuck gordon larry gordon lloyd levin for getting us back i remember they got us back in the other thing that was weird was we were making the flash tv show at the exact same time that that movie was shooting we were shooting the flash tv show so we weren't available to hang out on the set or anything mm -hmm. we went out and visited a couple times and there were times where joe johnston called us out because he needed a rewrite that was urgent or difficult mm -hmm. but um it was kind of torture that we couldn't sort of enjoy that six years of building that but at the same time it wasn't torture and that we were very happily busy you know doing 22 episodes of the flash so and there was one night where the rocketeer was on the flash set except the flash was off the lot but on the, it was at warner brothers outside our office this outside of the south seas club was one of our flash sets redressed so that was cool but i never like had hey guys let's get a picture of the two of you and you know it didn't happen because the flash was shooting on location where the rocketeer was on the lots it was very busy that year i mean I, I guess you know when you're busy like that you definitely you can only like sort of be wistful or appreciate how amazing it is in hindsight when you're doing it mm -hmm. you just deal with what every problem that keeps pile every day what do we have to do to keep all this stuff going uh, but i definitely remember being a little bit frustrated that well we really don't get to play writers and hang out and just schmooze and you know <laughs> enjoy the being on the set it was all the one times we went to the set were very targeted and i can remember them now dave spent i think he was on the set the whole time dave stevens mm -hmm. because the director joe he loved the art and he really respected the original vision and he included Dave in the art department really the whole time. Right. And I'm, I'm curious, you know, before Joe joins the movie, William Deere is the initial director. I'm just curious, like in terms of what he wanted to do to what Joe Johnston wound up doing, like, was there any major shifts? Was there anything that stands out when you're developing it with, you know, William Deere? There were sequences that I remember clearly, like in, in the Bill Deere one, there was an early scene Well, there was a submarine and the nightclub was like on a cliff over the ocean in the Bill Deere one. And I definitely, I haven't read the script or anything. It's just what I remember from mm -hmm. 30 years ago, whatever, was all the mobsters were gathered at the nightclub and it said like family night. And it was like, you know, we welcome all the families, the, this, the family from there, the family, you know, it was like that kind of shit. I remember that. 
And then a submarine was a gag with the submarine was like the nightclub was on a cliff and below the submarine was down there. And I don't remember the machinations of what happened, but I do remember I think there was an earlier sequence and a later one. Oh, maybe the movie ended there and it didn't end at the observatory. There was another one in our version before Bill Deer, when we just wrote the script for Disney before there was a director. It was out in the desert with the Zeppelin and all the planes from the airfield, like Cliff and all his friends. And then the gangsters had joined them and they were on the ground in vehicles. So there were like multi levels of movement, but that was just too big. And when mm. even I think when Bill joined up, that was just in those days, that was out of scope. Now with CG, that wouldn't be out of scope. But in those days, you know, you would have to go to the desert and miniatures and full scale airplanes and all that. So we, you know, it wasn't the budget was sort of mid-sized. It wasn't like giant in the day. It was more mid-sized to big. And, and there were stuff was cut and trimmed in the course of the movie, too. But excuse me, in the Bill Deere version, I really remember that stuff in particular. And then I think there was a line in this movie that was Bill's that stayed, which is acting isn't acting like you're acting it's acting like you're not acting whatever that line is i'm pretty sure that was bills and that stayed like good stuff always stays there's another guy who did a draft at one point and there's one line of his and one joke that stayed no i don't think much else but there that was the big gopher which is a good joke you know um but yeah so that's what i remember about there was a it was a while like i think bill we were working with him for a year and a half, two years. I don't know. It was a long time. We were working with him. Then he went and directed Harry and the Hendersons because I remember being on the set of Harry and the Hendersons visiting with Bill. And I don't remember, like, I wasn't involved in any drama of when he got replaced or Joe Johnston came in. It was kind of like Bill's gone, Joe's come in. And I didn't remember what I and I don't remember it being negative about Bill. It was more like Hunting and Shrink the Kid just made a lot of money. The studio wants him to make the movie. I don't know. It really, honestly, Bill Deere would know. I I don't really just remember any drama being Well, it sounds like there's minor discrepancies between the different versions in the script there's like scenes that were different yeah or dialogue that was different but the vibe it wasn't totally different yeah it was just a different scene you know um and then when joe was doing it it seemed like and we did lots of working with him and my old assistant reminded me we were storyboarding in the office with him and us but he tuned it like he did. I don't remember big structural changes or anything with Joe. I think it was more about realizing it. And um, I'm sure he had his beats that, you know, he pumped up, but um, it wasn't like he came in with some new idea or anything, a big change. It really wasn't. It was just because the observatory, I'm sure I know that was our idea. Um at some point anyway well it's you said the word tone now i'll use your word it seems to be a particular tone and i this i watched the film the first time ever today oh to record oh, my okay, I, okay. I, 
this was this is completely new to me and there's definitely a vibe is the word i use tone is the correct term. oh well well i didn't even i thought okay usually i'm talking to fans who've seen the movie a million times so the one thing when i see that movie i say i can't believe we got away with that dialogue because we nobody would let us get away with that dialogue today so the one thing was that was paul and i being just old movie nuts and writing the dialogue like a 1930s movie. And like, nobody does that. I don't mm -hmm. even know if people were doing that besides us in the 90s. So what you're talking about is the tone. Yeah, that's completely, but you know, it's authentic to what I said before is like, Dave Stevens saw King of the Rocket Men. That's what gave him his idea for, to draw something that he was interested in and, and to get his comic story going. And we had known, it was all about we love 1930s movies mm -hmm. but uh, the fact that we got away with that dialogue um is kind of surprising i think zone troopers is the same by the way that's the thing is that if you see my b movie zone troopers that we were talking about before it's exactly the same it's 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 supposed to be a b movie as if it were made in the 40s a b movie and they all talk like that in that too well, I'm curious because you guys are developing this movie for a long period of time, but I was just wondering if the 89 Batman movie helped at all in getting this movie to the screen. No, I don't think so. Okay. No, I think Raiders. You know what I mean? It was like, it was going to be Disney's Raiders. It was never talked about or thought about as a superhero movie. Mm -hmm. It had only that it came from comics or from a graphic novel. But it was much more in the Doc Savage and Big Adventure movie what it was, serials, than comic books. It wasn't, you know, my Flash TV show was totally made possible by the 1989 Michael Keaton Batman movie, but not the Rocketeer. I don't think so. I think Disney was looking for their own Raiders when we sold it to them. And when you were adapting the, the books, what were like the biggest challenges in creating a screenplay out of that? Because you're, as you said, like, and I read the um the graphic novel recently. Book, or you know, the first section because it's kind of like a two part story of the collected works. The first part, you're pretty accurate while also making you know considerable changes to the form of the story. It still feels entirely like a very like solid adaptation of that story. But I'm curious when you were looking at it to adapt, what were the biggest challenges in turning that into a two hour movie? You know, it's a funny thing is, and, and Paul and I also wrote some of the chapters of the second book that Dave did where he goes to New York. Mm -hmm. And that was all going on at the same time when we were writing that. Um, I, it's funny that it, I'm reacting to the word challenge. None of it felt challenging at all. It was like, it was like we get to put this on the screen. <laughs> and then you just get into, wouldn't it be cool if, right? Nothing about it was... Like, gee, because it wasn't it wasn't like a book like I adapted an 800 page book into a TV pilot. That was trickier, right? Because <laughs> you're trying to and, and it was going to be 13 episodes over that book. But still, this one, it was a, the book was thin. The book had his relationship. The origin story of finding the rocket pack and flying. And not much else that I recall. Mm. right and then until we did the new york adventure stuff 
it was it was really simple and cool and about the art and look some of the most original stuff about it which is sort of the unseemly side of betty and modeling and all that stuff that you know had to go out with disney what i don't remember hmm, i don't remember if we did story versions that were just like that with marco and stuff we might have i don't remember i do remember that even in script form i think it was script form there was some ruder stuff that was in there at times never got filmed or anything and it was earlier drafts but once it was disney it was like well it can't be betty you know and it can't they just that stuff was going to go away so then we're working on the relationship and stuff like that but it wasn't hard to adapt no it was easy well you sort of set me up for my next question um but like if you're looking at the story of you getting it onto the big screen you've gone through no director one director two directors you've gone from it being a touchstone pictures film to a walt disney pictures film it's gone through a lot of revisions with as we've said about different scene changes maybe we'll pick some more in a bit but what when i was reading through the history of the of the pre-production of this film the thing i thought was the biggest shift was moving from touchstone to walt disney because that's a we talk about tone again and some of the more adult themes in the original graphic novel what were some of the things that were stripped away out of your screenplay as opposed to what was in the graphic novel compared to what was actually put on? I think, I think the shift happened while they were shooting. Like, I don't think it was, it was while it was like, okay, now take the stuff out of the script because it's going to be a Disney movie. I think they were shooting when they decided it. Oh. And it had to, some of it had to do with, well, honey, I shrink the kids worked as a Disney movie and it made a ton of money. I remember distinctly that the producers were very upset that they thought it was going to hurt at that time in 1990, 91. You know, there weren't Disney movies that were major blockbusters like there are now with the Disney name on them. So the producers were really upset that it was going to be a Disney movie. They thought that was going to hurt the box office and hurt it. They, some of them, if you ask them now, they might still feel that way. But Paul and I were like cool with it because we always wanted to make a Disney movie. It was like, you know, that was like a life goal. So we were like, nah, we're fine with that. Um, and in retrospect, I'm glad it's a Disney movie as for the legacy piece because it's really well respected mm -hmm. now. Mm -hmm. Oh, definitely. You know, we're talking about it, right? Yeah, no, definitely. Yeah, it's it's on Disney Plus. Well, a lovely transfer on there. That's how I watched it today. I'm, I'm glad it's still getting the attention. I think it deserves. But let's maybe pivot off of the scripting in a sense and talk about the characters a little bit. Now, you've got Billy Campbell as in his breakout role in a sense in, on the big screen um, playing the Rocketeer himself. When you were putting the screenplay together, did you have anyone in, in mind as to who you were looking as, like a, 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 an actor in your head? No. No, because I think it's because we were adapting it from the comic. I think what we would, what I'd see in my mind's eye was kind of some weird blend of the people in the comic, but physicalized. Um, mm -hmm. When we wrote, the original version of the five bloods that one was the one where we actually kind of had actors we were thinking about and 
but usually I don't. Usually I just like a character that's kind of semi blurry and kind of a little bit out of focus. You know, it's it's very rare that I think of an actor. Um, and even when I that one where we did have him, it still went in and out of focus too. It's just in the mind's eye, right? Right. So the answer is no. And when they were casting it and they were talking about, you know, Tom Cruise or Kurt Russell or people like that, it always felt a little awkward because no, nobody really felt. I mean, whatever they would have done with it, it would have maybe been a bigger hit for sure. And maybe they would have made it their own. It would be interesting for sure. But um, I never saw Bill Campbell before that. And it was just like, OK, it's an unknown. And he did it well. and. He made it work, right? And she was great. Um, yeah, I think Dalton was great as uh, Neville Sinclair. He was, you know, from at least from what we saw in the script. Well, I'm curious, you know, you cue me up there for Neville Sinclair, who's not an element of the original stories. I would just like to know, because that's one thing I talked about in the review, was these movies live or die depending on the strength of their villains. And I think you have two terrific ones in this movie. And Lothar, you obviously brought over from the second volume, but I'm curious about the creation of Neville Sinclair and where that came from. Well, so Lothar didn't come from the second volume. The second volume, it came from the idea to put him in the movie. Mm. And then it was, let's put him in the second volume also. So it was really, um, and then Neville Sinclair, it was like, it was Errol Flynn. It was that rumor that Errol Flynn was a Nazi spy and had a ham radio in the Hollywood Hills. That was all the research that was involved, was that old Hollywood legend. And so we just ran with that. We needed a villain. You know, I don't think the comic book had that. We didn't have a movie villain. And that was what we wanted to do. It was the Hollywood, you know, it fit the locale and the venue and it felt right. And it was just like, we just had the idea. Let's do that. And so, but it was totally based on that crazy rumor that Errol Flynn was a Nazi spot. Right. But that was it. Like what I said, we just went with that. You know, I didn't go read a book about it or anything. Right. And I mean, how much fun was it writing sequences like the, you know, the nod to Adventures of Robin Hood and elements like that, where it's this very theatrical character? Yeah, that stuff was. It's funny, the stuff on the set, I'm trying to remember. Writing that Um, the movie, you know. It was a lot of rewriting and a lot of notes, you know, and I think that was done in one of those rewrites. Maybe somebody else wrote that. We rewrote it again. Um, no, you know, we were mining the thing we knew the best that we mined the most. Trancers is the same, right? If you look at Trancers was just 1940s movie stuff. They said, here, we want you guys to write this movie about this detective from the future and we were like okay we'll make him like a philip marlowe detective from the future and and because we loved um raymond chandler so and then thomerson did too and that's how so trancers and zone troopers and the rocketeer and actually something i wrote very recently they're all come out of the same love for old movie stuff i i'd be remiss as we are a spy movie podcast, of not digging into the spy of the film just a, a little bit more. Now he, obviously, you say you based it on the the, the uh, Errol Flynn rumor, um, and I, as you said, you didn't have anyone in your mind's eye about casting. Oh, you know what? Of course, on you ended up one, with though, James Bond. You know, 
Oh, go on. You know, maybe I'm full of crap. Now that I'm thinking about it, <laughs> Basil Rathbone for sure was Neville Sinclair when we wrote the script. Okay. So I, whatever I said before, maybe it's just because I'm getting foggy or it was coming in and out of focus. <laughs> the other one was the Paul Servino role, Eddie Valentine, was definitely Joe Pesci. It was supposed to be this little guy who talked really fast instead of this big guy who talked slow. Mm-hmm. And then... Um, the PV role, now some of the other ones are like I said, they're just blurry. But the PV role also was, we really wanted, um, now we're talking about a 1930s movie actor, but it was like William Demarest, you know, who in those old movies, he was a little tough guy who talked really fast. Mm-hmm. Um, so those there was a few of them in the case of the Rocketeer that were archetypes, actually. And I guess I forgot that when you asked me the first time. <laughs> But yeah, um, the, not all of them, but definitely Basil Rathbone, Neville Sinclair. And that's probably, you know, that's why the Robin Hood thing happened as Robin Hood was Rathbone and the sword fight, you know, with the shadow and all that stuff. Now, I, I'm going to dig into the spy just a bit more because I, I need to know. There's a whole scene where you see uh, Jennifer Connelly's Jenny going into his man cave behind the hidden bookshelf thing. It's all very fun. And you see his, uh, his radio and his Nazi paraphernalia just to give it away that he's a Nazi spy. Was there ever any more to the spy side of it? Did we ever find out anything more about what he's been up to or some of his successful missions? Or was it more just that like tease and that was where it was left? Well, it's all tied to the... Um the mission at the end with the Zeppelin and all that. Right. Mm. Um, well, you know, the animated piece, right. The animated piece in the film, there was just a bunch of an article written about that recently that was published everywhere, like a month ago, three weeks ago. Um, the animated sequence was showing the threat and the stakes of, of the villains and their, and their plans. Mm-hmm. But um, no, there wasn't, I don't remember ever doing any, and he did this in 1942, and then he did this, and wrote some kind of crazy history like that. No, and the radio room was, again, the rumor of Errol Flynn in Las Feliz had a back room with a ham radio in it. That's what it was It was based on, was that rumor. You're breaking my heart, but otherwise that's yeah. fine. No, there was no. <laughs> I, just, um, I just want more. There was no uh, the history of Neville Sinclair, the spy, right? But he absolutely mm. was a spy in this movie. He was a total yeah spy pretending to be a, a, an actor in Hollywood, a British actor in Hollywood who was working for the Nazis. Of course, he's a total spy, the bad guy. Uh, what was your reaction? Because obviously you mentioned you were a James Bond fan growing up. Some of your earliest film experiences were seeing Bond films in the cinema. And lo and behold, a film that you've written has James, uh, as that time, the most recent James Bond cast as its main villain. That's a, that's a pretty big thing. Yeah. Uh, uh, so there's a big anecdote is when um, Paul and I went out to visit the set. Actually, it was this set right here, the Bulldog Cafe, which was about 30 miles north of L.A. And... Uh, we were driving back from the set in the evening and I think Paul was in his car and Dalton was in like a BMW convertible or something. And he pulled up like next to us and he passed us. Right. And we immediately went into James Bond bad guy mode with the <laughs> theme song. It was like, 
it's Bond. And it was like, dun, 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 dun. And we actually stepped on the gas and started following him on the freeway for a good, you know, two or three minutes pretending we were um, James Bond bad guys. That was absolutely the the Bond moment on the making of the Rocketeer was was him and his convertible on the highway and us chasing him. Yeah. <laughs> and you really get the sense like that he's really relishing that performance in the way that I'm sure playing Bond, you're acting opposite, you know, other actors who are getting to play Bond villains and having a lot of fun. And you get the sense that uh, Timothy Dalton is very invested and even gets, you know, the big expo- explosive like Bond villain kind of demise. It's great. Well, he had this whole thing that he added that he really was falling for her. This was like his idea. And Paul and I were like, no, you're not. You're a complete Basil Rathbone villain and you're manipulating her and using her. And he's, no, I think I'm falling for her. So when he, he's, I remember him talking about, I could remember when maybe I was an extra in my history and I remember what it was like and I've seen her vulnerable and all this. And we, that was his thing. We couldn't really dissuade him or felt in any way like it was our place to dissuade him. I think at that point it was our point. Uh, what, do you need some lines written to add to that? <laughs> I think it's where we wound up with supporting it because that's what they wanted to do. But um, he was really nice. I remember that. And he was really into it. Like I said, that's why he was creating all this extra story and stuff. He was really into it. We interrupt this program to bring you a special report. Calling all agents. Independent podcasting, much like the spy game, requires considerable resources. Whether it's research, equipment, hosting, or of course, constructing a top secret volcano lair, we're putting out the call for your support. That's right. As you may know, we've activated the Spy Hearts Patreon home of our ever-growing lineup of Agents in the Field episodes where we decode non-spy films from your favorite spy actors and full film commentaries with more intel than a Basil Exposition briefing. Cam, what have we got in our crosshairs this month? Scott, bring me the Boar Worms because we are going to continue the Dalton celebration by looking at 1980s Flash Gordon. Flash! And if that sounds delicious, then become a true spy hard today and join the circus at patreon.com slash spyhards. But before this message self-destructs, Cam, resume the spy jinx. Now, I love a lot of the 30s elements that work their way into it, whether it's, you know, WC Fields showing up. That's all us. <laughs> and I would love to know um, if there was any more that just didn't make it to the screen. More references. Well, the, the really well-known bit is because it was in, there was a tribute page in the back of the comic of the Rocketeer, I think, landing in the Grauman's Chinese. Mm-hmm. And we wrote that sequence. It was storyboarded for sure. I don't think they shot it. I think it was one of those things where, see, they got squeezed. The other place they got squeezed was in the South Seas Club because the action that we wrote was way more intense. Like there were some really great bits where he like picked up a palm tree, like a battering ram and flew around and slammed it. There was a bunch of stuff, but I remember that they were supposed to be in there for 10 days and it got cut down to five or something like that. It was really, 
I remember Joe was really upset about that when it happened. And I heard that from, you know, I was at Warner Brothers. <laughs> they were at Disney. I heard that across, you know, a few miles away. Um, that, and there was another thing. Oh, and that Chinese theater thing was cut for budget. You know, they weren't giving them that much leeway. I think it was like 42 million and that's what you get. Mm -hmm. You know, I think it was, they had their model and they were tough. I don't think, I think it was pro a problem. I mean, I think it was, it was hard for Joe, I think. I think they were, in his mind, a little too tight. Mm -hmm. I wasn't on the set. I was dealing with the flash, so. I don't know exactly. I know I would have rather had all those bits in there. Right. Right. I just, I had one final question about Timothy Dalton before I move on to a couple of questions about Jennifer Connelly. Um, do Timothy Dalton gets a bit of stick for being maybe a bit, we're not charming, uh, very uh, uncharismatic. I've heard him called as his bond. I'm not sure I agree with these things, but this is what people have said. Now, this film comes a couple of years after License to Kill. And it really, for me, it feels like he is unleashed. He is he is chewing the scenery in all the best ways possible. Yeah. Was there any sense of like him in like, it sounds like he had a lot of fun from what I've read doing the, the film, but like, did you ever get a chance to speak to him about it? Or, or did you get a sense that he was getting a chance to really stretch his acting muscles a little bit there? No, but I could see it. What you just said, right? Um, look, he was a really well-trained theater actor, right? So mm -hmm. um, I think the movie was fun. I think he got into the whole Errol Flynn thing. You know, Errol Flynn is a spy. I think he just, you know, he went with it and he had good bits and good scenes and good set pieces and um, good death, like you mentioned earlier. Um, you know, again, I have to say that we were doing the flash. I didn't get to hang out. You know, mm -hmm. I'm I'm pretty calm, a big conversationalist. If I had time, I would have hung out on the set and bullshitted with him and talked all about Bond. I mean, I got much more into more interesting Bond stuff when I was doing the games because of Ken Adam, because I hired Sir Ken Adam and mm -hmm. and he and I became friends and and his history with Bond and the sets and the designs and all that. That really was where I got any the closest I ever got to the world of the making of James Bond. Because even in the games, we dealt with the broccolis and the rules. <clears throat> but I never met them face to face. They had a rep who was a really great guy who would tell us what we could and couldn't do. But it was Ken and being able to spend time with him who may, who was the production designer of Dr. No, um, Goldfinger, uh, I, I've, Dr. Strangelove, among other things. Spy Who Loved Me, I think he might have won an Academy Award for. So, um, and he also did Diamonds Are Forever. So, uh, Ken designed Bond. Ken was the architect of the Bond villain. So, when we talk about Bond, that's where I have some, whatever insight I have is through Ken, who is a, a hero of mine. All right. And we'll put a pin in that then, because we're, we're coming back to these games. Um, Jennifer Connelly, for me, I think was an absolute treat in the film as well and one thing i i gave credit for when we did the review earlier on today is the film has it's really good foundations in the fact that it pays thing it sets things up and pays them off so then from like the soup that jennifer connelly's character is drinking at the start and then she's having it again in the restaurant later stuff like the chewing gum pays itself off at the end it might seem basic to some people but it, it feels like it's missing 
from cinema nowadays. We we, we made a, a comment about um, we we're talking about the chewing gum, for instance. In a in a Marvel film these days, they will show you four shots of the chewing gum slowly peeling off as the as the uh, the stuff starts to dribble out, just to remind you that it's there. But Rocketeer shows it going once and it shows you it coming off, and that's all it needs to show. So credit to you in there. But back to to, to Jennifer Connelly. I mean, what was it like working with her? She came off a of labyrinth. She was a star was on the rise. And any sort of thoughts and memories of working with her? All I remember, remember, I can't, it's so unfortunate. We were stuck on the flash set. So yeah, she was, they were all really nice, you know, and I, and her and Bill were getting along quite well and um, they were happy. It seemed pretty happy. Joe Johnston would have a much better angle on how she was a professional what i remember you know she was a kid actor who grew up so there was no drama Mm -hmm. you know there was no not with them you know there was a little stuff with paul sorvino and whose scene is it and i remember paul and i had to go down there and rewrite something in the middle of the night five times because the actors were about whose scene is it as opposed to who's what story we're trying to tell that was pretty wild but never with bill or jennifer or alan arkin or anything no right pleasant i would say very nice and i wasn't around enough to have a good opinion (laughs) (laughs) it could be for the best to be fair like it was yeah that's the way it was um the other question i had about jennifer Connolly's character jenny um this is someone uh twitter has uh, sent this one in to be asked was there ever a version where you found out what happened to her career in Hollywood? Because she got thrown off that set, but did she ever get a role? Was there any mention of like her, her character having more of a, an ending? Look, it's definitely in the plans for the sequel, which were vague. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, we never thought she got to be a star, no. That was, I don't think that was the okay. idea. Uh-uh. I think... I think it was going to be more um, just a little bit more of an unusual path. I can't really remember, to be honest, but there was definitely a progression for her when Dave and Paul and I talked, because we had a deal to write the sequel, and it was going to be some version of New York, but not what was in the comic, obviously, because that had Loth, the Creeper, and all that. Um, But it was going to be a pre-World War II spy thing in New York, and maybe she was going there. She was going to be there. So I'm sure she was going there to do theater or commercials or something. It might have been commercials like cigarette commercials or something. But yeah, sure. Her, it went a little farther, but she was never going to be like a movie star or anything. They're, you know, they were supposed to be working class people. Mm-hmm. They were supposed to be working mm-hmm. class Hollywood, not celebrities. That was sort of the whole gag, the Rock of Who. You know, it was like they were just supposed to be like a Hitchcock movie, the average guy who finds the the rocket pack. You had me at New York spy thing. <laughs> yeah. In the 30s. That would be great. Mm. And I'm just really interested to know, as you know, someone who guided this movie along, what has been sort of your perception of the movie's changing relationship with audiences over time? Because it really feels like there's been a huge reappraisal to the point where when I'm watching this movie, you know, I, I saw it when I was, you know, 11 years old. But when I'm rewatching it just, um, this, you know, last night, it's like, boy, there's a lot of shots here that feel very similar to things we saw in Iron Man. And obviously, you know, Joe Johnson, Captain America, there's some similarities. It feels like this movie's cast a pretty 
noticeable influence despite the fact it, it didn't perform hugely at the time? I don't know that it was influential. I think it has the same influences as those other things, mm. as Captain America. I think that's what it is. It's Kevin Smith said the nicest thing about it. He said it's the most realized comic book movie, meaning the most faithful to the book um, in terms of tone and what it is. And I think that's cool. You know, I think we got at that, all of us, because um, we all really liked the book. That was the thing. Joe really liked the book. Bill Deere really liked the book. It was not like, oh, this is interesting. Now what are we going to do with it? No, everybody really liked it. And I think it's because Dave's art was so powerful. And as far as our contribution, you know, we had that 1930s voice. Like I said, Trancers, Zone Troopers, Rocketeer. Mm -hmm. um, and that's what we were doing at that point in our career. We were mining our bizarre sort of reinterpreting movies from the 30s and 40s. I don't know, because we'd get away with it, it seemed like. Um, it was really disappointing. We felt creatively, we thought the movie was cool. We didn't think just because it didn't beat Robin Hood and we didn't make the numbers that it wasn't good. I don't feel like the movie's any different now than I did then. But VHS, then Disney Channel, then now Disney Plus, it just didn't get a large enough audience to see it in 1991, in June of 1991. But 30 years later, everybody saw it, like your generation saw it, like I said, VHS, Disney Channel, and then Disney Plus, now another year it's nostalgic to you from your childhood and um people watch it with their kids who are in their 40s and it's i think i like to think it of the live action disney films of the eisner katzenberg era which there were a lot especially in the adventure films it might be the best one and the most beloved i mean they also made dick tracy which was cool mm -hmm. and um, you know, they had a lot of success with those earlier comedies, the Bette Midler stuff, but I know because I, when I was working at Imagineering, I don't know, six, seven years ago, I was like a celebrity because all those people in Imagineering were like in their late thirties and early forties and they loved the Rocketeer. Also, they were working at Disney, so they knew all the IP and everybody was like, he wrote the Rocketeer. He wrote the Rocketeer. It was like a big deal. So to this day, there's more merchandise on the Rocketeer now than there ever was. Like there was a board game came out a year ago, right? With mm -hmm. really nice art and locations for the movie and everything. So all that's really great. And, and you know, Paul died like four years ago, but as he had cancer and he was going out, it's kind of like, you know, our stuff is more well-liked now than when we made it, you know, by a lot. Um, and then it was always like, yeah, but how do we make any money off that? <laughs> how does that get us work? And no, but honestly, our thing was, you know, the Five Bloods was his last movie. And, you know, that was us trying to say, hey, we're not dead yet. Mm -hmm. You know, and also that was based on Treasure Sierra Madre. So it was very, we're still kind of in a more sophisticated way, mining our old movie stuff. But no, the relationship of the world to the movie is completely different than when it came out. Uh, my only disappointment is that if there is a sequel, I'm not involved in any way because that would have been nice. But, you know, that's why I just keep doing other stuff. But but no, it's it's I was at Comic-Con, you know, doing a panel because it was the 40th anniversary of the comic book. And also there's a documentary on Dave Stevens that's coming out soon that 
I helped with while I was interviewed in. And, you know, there's a lot of interest in it. And it's always because the art's so great. It's amazing. Tons of merchandise, tons, pins, action figures, lamps. I mean, there's just tons of shit. It it blew me away when I read today that they had discussed changing the helmet at some point. I just thought, that's insane. Yeah. Well, those were the fights, just like with the Flash and the sweatsuit. Those were the fights. And Joe and had Dave there, and they held the line. Well, the hard one was the rocket. The rocket in the comic looked like a little cylinder rocket, right? Mm-hmm. And I remember immediately, it was like, well, he'll burn his ass off. If you really fire that thing up, it's going to burn his butt. And I know they built that and tried to make it look good, but it looked too goofy. So then they adapted the sort of two-cylinder thing that it is. And yeah, there were arguments. There's a story that somebody told at Comic-Con that David said, which sounded familiar, was that the studio had them do an exploration of a bunch of different helmets. And they went in with um, Joe Johnson and he said, and they said, well, which one, what do you like? And he said, "Um, well, you could take any of these you want, but uh, get another director. Hmm. And so the helmets, the helmets, the helmet, right? I mean, it works. I mean, that's the art. It's the art. Yeah. It's yeah. It ties the whole thing together. I've, yeah, that's why it blew me away. But yeah, before we wrap up our discussion today with you, Danny, I think I want to touch on the James Bond games that you got involved with. Um, you mentioned, obviously, some of the connections earlier on, but how did you get involved with those games in the first place? How did games happen for you? How did Bond happen for you? Well, we were making um, the show Viper and the Sentinel in Vancouver, and I was flying back and forth, and I met the president of Electronic Arts on an airplane. Um, I love video games and I knew all about them. So he was interested in somebody who from Hollywood who really liked games and they were trying to figure out how to tell stories better and all this. The Sims was a really big hit, but it wasn't the kind of game I like to play. So I wound up because I was their only person from the film business at the time. I wound up on Harry Potter and James Bond and Medal of Honor because I like that stuff. so, yeah, I got involved with the James Bond franchise when I was a VP at EA, a creative VP. And the one that Paul and I really did tons of work on was called Nightfire, mm-hmm. um, which started out as You Only Live Twice. And it was started out as a You Only Live Twice game, and then it became Nightfire. Because didn't it, isn't that the one? It was had a bunch of stuff in Japan, right? In Nightfire? Nightfire, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, and that one was actually a really big hit. Then we did the story beats for, I think the one after that was Everything or Nothing. We did the story beats for that. Mm-hmm. Um, we didn't really work on the one where they got Connery, even though we really liked the idea that they were going with. Oh, and we also did a ton of work on Agent Under Fire, but we came in late to rewrite stuff and glue some stuff together. So writing Bond was, you know... I mean, we knew Bond really well. The restrictions were kind of difficult. I remember there was like this whole guide of what you couldn't do with Bond or could do. And then my whole EA career really ended on Goldfinger versus Dr. No, which was the game that Paul and I created. And we were going to actually make a game ourselves. And it became Goldeneye Rogue Agent. And I quit in the middle of production because it was going so sideways 
that it was the equivalent of I didn't want my name on this thing. It was like it started out great and it was going like it was a dream game. It was a James Bond bad guy game. It was. It was Goldfinger versus Dr. No. You were a henchman in I can't remember whose army, Goldfingers or Dr. No's. And Bond gets in the middle of it and all this. And then somebody had this idea to call it GoldenEye. And it just went south from there. And there wasn't enough time to make it good and all this. And I was like, I'm not going to die on this. But we did have Ken Adam as the production designer. And we did build Fort Knox. And he designed some custom sets that are in that game. Um, so my journey with Bond was over a few years and a few games. Um, but the one that I feel most that I contributed the most to was Nightfire. And I also directed all the voice actors and did all that too on those games. Well, if I remember correctly, Nightfire was the one, I think one of the most well-received ones. Definitely one of the ones I played out of the bunch that you did. Um, it was the biggest hit, I think, of yeah. those. And it was originally, we had a different actor in it and a generic Bond. And then um, I think it was a smart idea, but I think it was John Riccatello who was, the head of EA at the time said, the move, the 20th, whatever bond is coming out. There's all this promotion around. It's coming around at the same time in the movie. Let's hire Pierce Brosnan, put, it, put his face on the game and his name on the box. And I went back in and re-recorded all the dialogue with him. Well, yeah, you're, you're writing for Bond now. This is like the pinnacle of, of the young Danny and what he wanted. What's the, your favorite bit of dialogue that you wrote or favorite moment you wrote from the games that you recall? Well, I don't... Tough question. I don't remember anything from the games that I wrote. The Rocketeer, that one I could go back to and tell you what my favorite mm -hmm. line of dialogue is that I wrote. Is that one, yeah, that one, my favorite, and I wrote this one because it was based on a line from Streetcar Named Desire just twisted and mutated, which was, um, I might not be uh, you know, on the level, but I'm 100% American. You know, that, you know, that one, because that was uh, that one. I don't know. I, I think that's one of the better lines of that, you know, but it was just one of those things where it was like, you know, just gangster logic. Mm. Um, you mentioned that you were directing the voice actors. So you got to direct Pierce Brosnan. Yeah. yeah. How was that? Well, twice. Two long sessions. Mm. It was. Um, let me talk about Judy Dench was amazing. Okay. Like doing <laughs> Judy Dench. That was, she was fantastic. Um, Pierce did two, four hour sessions and um, it was just kind of hard to get him into the vibe of the game, you know, of where it was going on. Mm -hmm. That's all. Um, but I do remember she was ridiculously amazing. Like I recorded her in London and, and it was just, whatever you want. Would you like another one? How can I do that? You know, she was just, just a lot of fun. I had a lot of great actors in the UK that I worked with. Cause I also did the Harry Potter games. I directed the actors for that too. So there was a lot of great people that I did work with. Um, but I think the Pierce stuff was tricky because he was replacing tracks that were there, but I mean, I think it worked. And I still, like I said, I think it was a really good idea to put him in the game, even though it was kind of a last minute change, I think it was really smart. When you're writing the games and you know you did original stories and then you did some where you worked with a lot of legacy characters, did you have a preference? Like which was more 
enjoyable as a writer to do oh you mean for bond yeah the legacy stuff of course like getting able to play with those toys like you know odd job and goldfinger and dr no and pussy galore and that stuff that was that was great what was hard was they were making us ship it too quickly and it wasn't ready and it wasn't you know what i mean it was it was getting ground up to the point where i just felt i quit over Mm -hmm. it um it needed more time and it didn't fit the business model at the time and it was difficult uh but the ideas and the original stuff i was really excited about really excited about i thought it was going to be the killer fresh james bond game right the james bond bad guy game i thought it was going to be great Mm -hmm. but you know it's just the way it goes in the creative arts you know well you know you, you you gave us some of the best digital bond moments ever created and that that's uh i mean you also gave us two of like the non-canonical in air quotes pierce brosnan bond stories that we never got i'll take that they were voiced by pierce brosnan they're as canonical as i'm ever gonna get i got six movies (laughs) (laughs) um now i could have another hour and a half talking to you we didn't even touch on half of the films you've made i want to talk about the five bloods all kinds of things, but time is running short. And so we have one question we always ask our guests on the show before we let them go. This is everyone from John Glenn to you now. What is your favorite spy movie? Wow. I have to say Goldfinger. I have to. You know, my brain goes to other things like the Ipcris file and some other things I really love, but um it has to be Goldfinger. To me, Goldfinger is the quintessential Bond film. You know, for me, for of the because it was the first one where it started to go over the top, and what it kind of became after that. And yeah, definitely Goldfinger. I usually follow up with a "What's your favorite James Bond film?" But I think you've answered that one too. <laughs> yeah, no, it's got to be that. It's got to be that. Does that make Connery your bond? Oh, no question. <laughs> no question. No, not even. I mean, it's yeah, he's kind of the only one. I did like um some of other stuff. Everybody's like a little bit of some Roger Moore's were cool, really cool. Some Timothy Dalton's were cool. Um and uh of course the more recent stuff with Daniel Craig, mm-hmm. um, some better than others, but you know, I read all the books. Let's go. So when I was ten, I my grandfather had all the books in the guest room at his house. So when I would stay over there when I was ten, I would just be staying up at night reading the novels. So I read. I'm sure I saw from Russia with Love and Goldfinger before I started reading, and maybe even Thunderball, but. I was I read all the books when I was a kid. So you know, it was it was a huge influence to me. That's when you ask me, it's not just cuz this is what your show's about. It if I always say that if you look at Viper, I mean everything was was had that was all gadgets in a James Bond car. So um we were super influenced by Bond. Paul's mom was catholic and she wouldn't let him go to the bond movies because the catholic newsletter said they weren't okay for kids at the time but of course by the time he was 12 he was a few years older than me anyway 
by the time he was 12, he saw them all. So, no, that stuff was huge. And then we got to work on them in the game side, never in the film side. And it is that thing when you start working on them, you go, gee, I kind of wish I hadn't because it spoils some of the magic. But now it's been so many years since then that I forgot all my detailed pain of working on stuff. And <laughs> it's back to, yeah, the Connery stuff for sure. Goldfinger for sure. Um, there's no two ways about it. I, I don't think you can top that. Um, Goldfinger. Great pick. Danny, I want to thank you for taking the time to speak to us today to take apart the Rocketeer and send it off into the into the stars. <laughs> um, and um, yeah, it's been an absolute blast, if you'll pardon the pun. Yeah, no, thank you, guys. And uh, some other time we can cover the rest of it. Yeah, we'll sort that out. Thank you, Danny. All right. Take care. See you later. Thank you. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. Well, there you go, folks. That was our chat with the co-writer of this week's film, The Rocketeer, Mr. Danny Bilson. And we want to thank Danny for taking the time to speak to us this week and even dealing with a few technical issues. What a champ. That's right. This was a real pleasure, especially a movie like this that had such a like memorable moment in my childhood. And to just hear the development stories, but also some correctives, because that was one thing when we did the episode, you know, I did my research and went to, you know, pretty solid sources, but there was a lot of little bits along the way that he was able to correct that clearly have just been kind of, well, when a movie's developed over six years, certain things kind of get lost to the sands of time. And I was very appreciative that he was able to give us kind of the definitive take as, you know, someone who was there. Well, I mean, firstly, that pivotal moment is when you saw the rocketer put the helmet on and you decided to start wearing a helmet for the first time, right? That's exactly right. And I'm wearing it right now. You, I mean, you saved the world a lot of tears that day. But never saved the world. <laughs> no, 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 no. Um, no, but that, quite right, though. And yeah, I mean, the rocketer is... I wouldn't say it's going through sort of a reappraisal phase. I think it's gone through that. It has already been reappraised and a lot of people really look to it as well, a really fun early superhero film although even danny would be the first to say it's not necessarily a superhero film it's a a serial adventure which Mm -hmm. it is both um but yeah i all these details start to come out in these discussions and now there are being more interviews done there's a documentary as he mentioned coming out on you know on the writer of the rocketeer graphic novel so the film is being sort of studied now so I guess these details will be discussed and, and you know some of the incorrect information on Wikipedia will be changed. And I'm glad that we can change a few bits ourselves. Well, I won't. And the uh, collected graphic novel is actually very affordable um, on Amazon. You can get it for a decent price. And it's a really beautiful collection. So I would recommend anyone who has appreciation for The Rocketeer, check out Dave Stevens' work because the art is astonishingly beautiful. And uh, it's just a very interesting telling of that story that I think if you're a fan of the movie, you'll be interested in seeing how they differ because there's a lot of similarities, but there's a lot of tonal differences and a lot of just shades about that graphic novel that are really interesting, but very different. Yeah. And it was interesting to, to hear that like a lot of the more adult themes that were in the graphic novel did actually make quite far in the scripting process. It was really only on the set and maybe late in the game they, I don't want to say like changed it more for young audiences, but I I guess that's what they did. Yeah, I mean, I think if you're making the movie with Disney, 
certain elements like you know the the girlfriend character betty slash jenny in the the 1991 movie Mm -hmm. that's not going to work for disney and honestly like you look at the audience that movie impacted it was probably the right call because i think you know a lot of people now have huge nostalgia for this very like optimistic very loving look at sort of this 1930s hero and I think if you made it darker, maybe it wouldn't have that same hold over people this many years later. Well, I I, I didn't bring it up in the in the review earlier this week, and I'm surprised I didn't because it, it it's actually in my notes. But one thing this film reminded me a lot of is Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Mm, yeah, not necessarily in story or in concept. It's more just about adaptation, and that's you know, Who Framed Roger Rabbit is a very different story in a novel form, or you tell me at least anyway, um, and darker too. The book Who Censored Roger Rabbit is very dark, incredibly dark, and has a lot of pretty um, pretty tough social commentary in it. And frankly, the only thing that made it over to the movie version was a couple of the characters, um, the fact there was a murder. That's really about it. But and the reason I bring it up is both are I would say successful adaptations, mm-hmm. and don't necessarily bring over the darker elements, and yet they still work. Mm-hmm. Definitely, yeah. Um, but yeah, going back to sort of the the discussion, what was one of the highlights you had? I think for me, I was really interested in delving into those villains mm-hmm. and hearing about not just sort of the uh, development of the Timothy Dalton villain as, you know, kind of this Basil Rathbone slash Errol Flynn character. That's just a fun, a ton of fun to hear about. But like um, the Lothar villain who I talked about in the episode and I clearly had it wrong in that the um, Lothar character was written into the second volume of the graphic novel after the movie, after the script had been developed with Lothar as, you know, a secondary villain. So I thought that was just genuinely fascinating as someone who read the graphic novel just a you know, a couple of days ago. Well, yeah, you, you weren't to know that they were basically putting it out at the same time and looking to the writers of the film to be like, well, mm-hmm. what do you want to do with it? And it makes complete sense. Um, yeah, I totally get it. And I, I mean, I was not a big fan of the character myself, but I totally get why he was translated over to the graphic novel because he seems like he's completely out of a comic book. Mm-hmm, definitely, yeah. Um, I mean, for me... If we're talking about the Rocketeer, I was just quite fascinated sort of charting the course of how it was made and how it wasn't actually that far off. Like, I mean, there were scenes that were slightly different, dialogue that was slightly different, different directors contributed different bits to different scenes, and there was was also other writers that contributed to the film as well. But ultimately, it was really a case of the tone and the heart of the film was there very early on. And it was just about going about it different ways until it was eventually made. Yeah, I was really interested to hear him talk about William Deere, the original director attached to the movie. Because, you know, often cases when there's director switches, things can change. And it's interesting how it seems that both Joe Johnston and William Deere, while there's scenes that differed and, you know, lines and little bits like that, ultimately they both had a pretty clear sense as to what the movie should be. Yeah, they they both seem to get the vision, as it were. And yeah, we we've had screenwriters on here that have spoken at length about ideas they've had that never got to see the screen. Now we spoke a little bit about a different ending where there's you know cars and planes all chasing the um, the zeppelin, 
but there's no money for it. That totally makes sense. But it's crazy to hear that like the film was fundamentally the same mostly all the way through. And really the pre-production problems are more to do with like who's making it and how do we make it and like for what budget and is it like a noir or no, it's a full-on action picture. Like that, that is the thing that held it back. Yeah. And I could definitely feel the... Not the regret, but just like kind of the uh, lost opportunity he felt for not being able to be on set during the shooting of this because he was so busy with The Flash. That must have been a bummer to work on a project just for that long. I mean, you are glad to have a steady gig. If you're working on The Flash, you're at least set for a season of television. And as a writer in Hollywood, that's a good place to be in. But at the same time, to shepherd a project for that long and not be able to be there to watch it being realized, I'm sure, is sort of a... um like mixed blessing almost. I mean, it's a blessing it's happening, but at the same time, kind of a bummer not to be there. Sure. And, you know, they poured years into this film, uh, Danny and his his co-writer, uh, Paul DeMeo, who only passed away a couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. And they were saying, you know, here and you really got to see the beginning of the film being reappraised, but he, he got to see it, which I think is really lovely. But um, one thing I found it, it is a shame that he... Um, didn't get to be on set. And especially, he spoke about his love of Bond very early on in his life. Both of the, you know, him and Paul both loved Bond and they connected over that. And to not be able to spend time with Timothy Dalton on the set of the film you're making where you have James Bond as the star. And it wasn't like Pierce Brosnan was Bond at this point. It was still Timothy Dalton. Mm-hmm. Um, and not being able to spend time with him. I, I imagine if we ever wrote a film and like Daniel Craig says, yeah, I'll do it. Me and you would want to be there picking his brains. I would have to think so. Yeah, although I don't know that Daniel Craig's... I don't know. Do you think he would be, like, super accommodating to our nerdy Bond questions? Depends who's signing the checks. Mm, I see, I see. Okay, fair I'll enough. Leave, I'll leave that there. Yeah. Mm. Um. But other than that, I mean, I it was interesting because like, I didn't feel like I'd learnt a ton more about the Rocketeer in terms of what I liked about it. Like, it's, it's clear that they were all very passionate about the film, and I think that passion showed through in the, in the final product. You could tell he was very um, happy with what was made in the end. One thing I did like talking about, though, and hearing him just sort of briefly talk about, was his reaction to the legacy of the film. Yeah. How perception has changed on it, and he found that quite heartwarming. To know that people are, are like looking at it again and his film that he spent years getting made is now being seen properly and given the attention it deserves. Yeah, I mean, it is regarded now as a Disney classic. And if this, you know, sequel they announced past the, you know, the past summer um, comes to fruition and people like it, then it's going to just extend the legacy of the Rocketeer and... Who's to know in a future, like, what could happen with the Rocketeer property? Anything really could. The sky is the limit, Scott. The sky is the limit. (laughs) Beautiful. Beautiful. (laughs) Well, I mean, I I can't beat that. So that's probably the Rocketeer done. The only thing I think worth mentioning as well is, and I didn't know this when when I, like, reached out to Danny and sort of booked the interview, was his credentials in James Bond video games. Hmm. Because those, especially like Nightfire and Everything or Nothing, are very highly regarded, especially with Brosnan fans, because they're basically like two full movies with like cast. Willem Dafoe and Jaws is in one of them. Yep. I played Nightfire 
Yeah. Nightfire was one I had on my PC that I really enjoyed. Yeah, and uh, you know, I, I, I like Calvin Dyson has like a playthrough of both of the games on his YouTube channel, and it's just, it's just crazy to think that like they had Pierce Brosnan reprise the role in a fully scripted, acted out, and, and Danny got to direct Pierce Brosnan. Didn't have a great experience with it, but he got to direct Pierce Brosnan and Judy Dench's M. That's still pretty cool. Yeah, and I believe also he didn't mention it, but uh, I know John Cleese was associated as well. So there would have been some Vaughn luminaries that would have been swinging by the recu- uh, recording studio, which would have been very cool. Yeah, just a, a, a fun little side note. In you know, he obviously had a good time doing it. A couple of years working for EA and, and putting these games out. Tie-in games do not get the love like they used to. I don't think. I I, I don't think I've seen a Daniel Craig film that really works this way. Although Danny did almost get to work on the From Russia with Love with Sean Connery, so he could have added a third Bond to his uh, list of Bonds he's worked with. Close but no cigar. But yeah, that would have been a, a treat to have Sean Connery um, recording lines that you wrote. That would be pretty cool. Yeah, absolutely. But um, but there you go, folks. That was our additional extensive coverage of 1991's now Disney classic of The Rocketeer. Cam, the question goes to you, sir. What on earth are we doing next week? Yeah, we're tackling the 39 Steps, but not the Hitchcock version, the 1959 version starring Kenneth Moore. This was a remake of the Hitchcock classic. We, back in the day, probably would have covered this if we'd had our ducks in a row and done it as a original remake, remake sort of setup, but that's not the case. So we are going to catch up with the second version. There is a third from the 70s we'll do further down the road, but right now we're going to focus on this one. Yes, it'd be nice to go back to the world of Mr. Memory and running through all the the highlands away from all the police and the crofters' wives of the world, see what they're up to. But um, other than that, you know, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll put some fish on and uh, we'll have some dinner, Cam. That works for you. It works for me. Let's fry it up, baby. Well, there you go, folks. Your mission, should you choose to accept it, is to check out 1959's version of the 39 Steps and join us next week. If you like what you hear on the show, please consider leaving us a five-star review wherever you get your podcasts. And do not forget to follow us discreetly on social media at SpyHards, that's S-P-Y-H-A-R-D-S, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. But until next week, folks, you know my rules. No gentleman allowed inside after 6 p.m.